Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. My guest this week is Tom Colgan, editorial director at Berkeley Books, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Tom has spent more than 35 years championing such authors as Tom Clancy, Mark Graney, and Janet Ivanovich. We talk about how he got his start as an editor, what editors do and don't do, you may be surprised, how the creative process is different for everyone, and why, despite coming up with many ideas for books, he doesn't dream of writing one. He also has some advice for aspiring authors. If you've ever wondered how the books you buy got from an author's imagination to your coffee table, you'll enjoy my conversation with Tom Colgan. Tom, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you. Thanks. So I start everybody out with the same question, which is, were you a creative kid or was your creativity something that you kind of discovered later on? Um, gee, that's a good question. I guess, uh, maybe you should ask my sisters. Uh, <laughs> I feel like, no, I, I feel like I was not very creative. I feel like I became more creative as I got older because I felt more like I could assert my creativity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so i I guess I felt kind of constrained, uh, when I was a kid. So no, I guess I wouldn't say I was a very creative kid. So does that mean that you had things that you wanted to do but didn't have the opportunity when you say you felt constrained? Um, it's, I wouldn't say I didn't have the opportunity because I don't want to ever imply that like my parents or anybody like, you know, it wasn't out, it wasn't an outside constraint. It was more like, you know, uh, my, my biggest problem, I think, like a lot of people is self-doubt, you know, mm-hmm. is uh, definitely imposter syndrome. So uh, I think what held me back was the thought, like, why would anybody want to hear what I had to say about this or what that or whatever? So I think that was really uh, more the thing. That makes sense. And and yeah, mm-hmm. that happens to so many people. <laughs> yeah. So many people. Mm-hmm. One way or another, comparison comes for us all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did you come to discover your creative side? Um, it was my job. You know, I'm an editor. Um, and uh, as time went on, uh, you know, I, I found that I was... Um, uh, you know, talking to authors about their books. And, you know, at at first I was really listening. um, And then I was listening and commenting. And then, you know, they, you know, a lot of times they talk about like, well, I have a problem with this plot and I can't figure out how to get this guy from here to there. And, you know, and, and I'd say like, well, let's think about this. I mean, maybe if, you know, this thing happened, it would propel him to go there. Um, And then as time went on, it became more and more my job to uh do that and then to some degree in in some areas um you know i I literally just uh started with an idea like i would make up an idea and then hire an author to you know carry it out so i'm not listen i am not at all like the most creative person i'm definitely not like on the level of the my authors but in terms of uh little things i feel like i'm creative okay fair enough (laughs) I, I think we're all creative in ways that we often don't recognize, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's sure. interesting that that it kind of seems to have come on in stages a little bit with you. Well, I think it was I think the stages are directly tied to the secure my security, you, you know, in my head, um, myself, my, myself, the building up of my self-esteem. You know, what I mean, <laughs> the more I became secure that like, hey, that worked out. Oh, I could try this. That worked out. Oh, I can try this. That worked out. You know, so I, I think it was more a matter of that and uh, and just maturity. You know, just you get older, and uh, I guess as the, it is true that the older you get, the less you really care what people think. <laughs> you absolutely. I mean, I'm older than you, and I'm telling you, it's absolutely true. <laughs> I had the the most interesting conversation with my mom almost a year ago on my last mm-hmm. birthday because I turned 50 last year Mm -hmm. and I was talking to her and I said, do you remember what I said to you on your 50th birthday when I would have been about 26, 25, Mm -hmm. something like that? And she said, no. And I said, oh, I do. (laughs) 
I said, I told you that I was jealous because you were 50. I said, you proceeded to tell me that I was crazy. <laughs> or, or it might have been more like she asked me, like, are you crazy? Yeah. Um, and I said, no, I don't think so, because I think by the time you turn 50, either you've figured it all out or you don't care anymore if you've figured it all out. Oh, and I said, the closer I have gotten to this milestone birthday, the more I've realized that I was surprisingly wise at whatever age that was in my mid-20s, because it's really true. <laughs> it is absolutely true. But I, I do wonder, is there anyone who's figured it all out? I mean, I, Oh, I, I don't I, think so. I would be scared of people who think they've figured it all out. You know what I mean? Like, I think they'd be psychopaths if they think they've figured it oh, all yeah. out. I, I think the Dalai Lama probably hasn't figured it all out. So, you know, there's no hope for the rest of us except to stop caring if we figure it all out. Oh, so the Dalai Lama might have like uh, imposter syndrome. <laughs> I never thought of that. Good Lord. Where are we? I think, I think the Dalai Lama probably recognizes that there are things we're just never going to know. And that's, that's okay. You know, I think if anybody exemplifies the art of acceptance, yeah. It's probably him. You, you got that right. I'm sure that's true. So, and maybe that kind of is figuring it all out. I don't, I don't oh, know. Wow, this got really deep really fast. <laughs> I know, it really did. I never about that. <laughs> we could chew on that one separately, yeah. along with everybody who's listening. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I I find it interesting. So, people who are listening don't know that, that we discovered each other on Twitter not all that long ago. Yeah. And you have been posting these great handwritten notes every day <laughs> called Chronicles of the Quotidian. Yeah. And the one that really stands out in my mind was the story of how you got your first job as an editor, which I think was pretty creative, to be honest. And I'm wondering if you would share it with everybody else. Um, so I, uh, if we, if, if I'm thinking the same story. So I was, uh, working for Berkeley and I was, uh, an assistant, you know, uh, I was not an editorial assistant. I was just a, uh, I was an assistant to a guy who was the publishing manager. It was a great job. He was a great guy. It was really great working for him. Um, and at the time there was a person who did nothing but Westerns. There was a, this was 1986 maybe 87. There's a person who did seven Westerns a month. It was a full-time job called the Westerns editor, did seven Westerns a month. That person left. And to this day, I remember she went to UPS. I don't know why. I cannot <laughs> remember what I had for breakfast. But I can remember that this woman left to go work for UPS. Um, and I determined that I was going to get this job. I went to the editor-in-chief and I said to him, um, you have to give me the Western job. Uh, I, I love Westerns. There's nobody else here who knows Westerns as well as I do. I, I, I'm your man. I'm going to do right by these Westerns in a way that nobody else can. And what I didn't count on at the time was that um, how desperate he was because he had these seven books a month and nobody wanted to touch him with a 10-foot pole. Here I was like desperately trying to convince him. And the minute I said, I want to do the Westerns in his head. He was like, great, perfect. You, <laughs> they're yours. So he says, okay, you can do the Westerns. So I said, great. And then I left, you know, walking, it was like 10 feet in the air in my head. And I stopped in Penn station on the way home and bought the first Western I had ever read in my life. Cause I had completely lied to him. I had never read a Western. I had never seen the only Western movie I ever saw was the man who shot Liberty Valance. And I had not even watched uh, like Bonanza or anything. So I knew nothing about Westerns. I had just completely lied to him. And uh, to make matters worse, the Western that I bought um, was by a guy named Brian Garfield, who also wrote um, Death Wish. You know, back in the day, all these big authors like Elmore Leonard, you know, were pulp writers and they a lot of them wrote Westerns. So I read Brian Garfield's and it was really wonderful. And I thought like, man, I lucked out. And then I got my first manuscript and I was like, wow, this is not the same caliber. That, that's all. <laughs> so, but the thing that was so beautiful about it, because it was such a typical publishing story was he, what he really said to me was great. You can become the Western's editor, that full-time job, as long as you keep your other full-time job 
as an assistant. So for two years, I did two full-time jobs, but I was very happy doing them. And that was my entree into editorial, was doing the Westerns. And somehow you still managed to sleep for those two years? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, th- the thing was, the reason you could do seven a month was there was like a bunch of guys who did them. Like they, they like there was a cast of, of writers um, who, you know, nobody could write 12 books. Well, some guys could write 12 books a year. So, and they, they had been doing it forever forever like they they were probably writing them when they were like contemporaries you know these guys were so old so i mean honestly like they knew what they were doing they didn't really need me i mean occasionally i you know say like hey you killed this guy on page 36 and he's back on page 52 you know (laughs) this henchman this henchman returned from the dead you know but they didn't really need me so it was not that hard a job but it was a really good entree into um into editorial yeah, that sounds like it could have been a really interesting training ground mm. because you could just see, you know, for the most part, how it was done because it was being done right in front of you. But can I tell you, can I, I can I get a little dark and tell you the sure. sad part of this? Okay. So the sad part of this is that, uh, so there were probably like seven books a month. There were probably like 14 guys who like rotated among these books and they were all great. They were all really nice. And I would go to this Western Rise of America convention every year and they would be so nice to me and like hanging around, talking to me, laughing at my jokes, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And then one day uh, I got another job and I remember calling them and, uh, you know, saying to them like, hey, listen, I'm leaving here and I'm going to go to Avon. Um, and so I don't remember who, uh, you know, someone was taking over the Westerns and most of them were great. But I remember one particular guy who had been the nicest guy to me said, um, oh, okay, you're doing any Westerns at Avon? And I said, no, no Westerns. He said, okay, goodbye. And I was like, wow. Like, I was just a kid, you know. I was like, I don't know, 25, 26 or something. And I thought this guy and I were best pals. But the minute, like, I, you know, there was nothing I could do for him, he, wow. he was like, okay, goodbye. Hey. Was kind wow. of sad. No, I'm sad thinking about that now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, yeah. yeah. But that was just one guy. I mean, I'm the, the other 13 or 12 or 13 guys were great. So, I mean, I, I shouldn't dwell on the one guy who was, you know. No, but it is interesting because, I mean, there is such a relationship that you build, you know, especially since you had that, that yep. group over yep. time that, yeah, no, that would be incredibly surprising and jarring. And I'd have to like go for a walk or sit down for a while after that. <laughs> just be like, I don't know what that just happened. Yeah. Yeah. What can you do? But... Wow. So, so had you always envisioned being an editor or did you just want to be in publishing in general? And when that opened up, you just said, hey, why not? Oh, I always wanted to be an editor. Okay. You know, uh, when, when I was in college, you know, I was the editor of the the, the, um, the humor magazine. I was the editor of the yearbook. I was at various times. I would, didn't do it all at once. I was the editor of the yearbook. I was the editor of the literary magazine. You know, I wasn't the editor of the newspaper, but I wrote for the newspaper. You know, I always wanted to be an editor. And um, I have another story. That I'll, I'll tell you another boring story about publishing. Um, and I knew somebody who worked at Berkeley. And she said, uh, hey, we have an opening. Do you want to come and apply for it? So I said, fine. I just want to get my door, my foot in the door of publishing. So uh, this was in uh, the department called Operations. And Operations is in charge of getting everything, like making sure the book happens. Not mm-hmm. just like, uh, like making sure the paper gets to the printer and then the, the printed books get from the printer to the warehouse and then they get shipped out and all this stuff. So it's just tons and tons of like stuff like that. Um, and this is 1985. So there's like one big computer in a room, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, a computer on every desk. There's one big computer in every room and it prints out on these huge big sheets of green and white striped paper, you know, with the, the sprockets mm-hmm. on the side. And this assistant job, you would take these big sheets and you would take a ruler and like, you know, because no one else could use that. You'd 
right, you know, you'd copy like 235 copies going here and you'd copy it on a piece of paper, 220 copies going, and then you'd, you know, you'd distribute that information to people by hand. I guess you just copied it or something. You Xeroxed it or something. Um, and I applied for this job. I was so desperate. And right when I applied for it, um, they were ready to hire me. And then this other job opened up, which was an assistant to the publishing manager, which was a hundred times more interesting than that. <laughs> And I felt kind of bad turning down this job that they were ready to hire me for, but they were very understanding. And I worked with those people, the people I sort of stiffed. I worked with them for years after that. They were always very nice to me. Um, but that I wouldn't have lasted a week in that job. I would have been out of publishing in a year. But I just wanted to get my foot in the door. Um, and then, you know, I wanted to get into editorial, but that's a problem. You know, that is always a problem when you're hiring and publishing because everybody wants to be in editorial. Maybe some people want to be in publicity and maybe some people want to be in art, you know, cover art. But, you know, there's so many other jobs. Nobody wants to apply. You know, no one is out there in college thinking like, man, I really want to be in contracts and publishing or I really want to be in, you know, uh, uh, pub ops, you know. Mm -hmm. But those jobs can be really interesting if you're of, you're of a mind to, but it's hard to get of a mind to. So anyway, sorry, I'm blabbing you. No, no, that's fine. I, I think that it's interesting because, you know, most people are not aware of all of the moving parts that go into a book being published. You know, they know there's an author, yeah. they know there's an editor, they know somebody prints it and somebody takes it to the bookstore or to Amazon or whatever. Yep. But that's really about all we see. And in fact, I was thinking, I was hoping that you would tell us exactly what an editor does and doesn't do, because I think that people have a really skewed perception of that in some ways. Oh, good. Well, the first thing we don't do, do not do, uh, well, I shouldn't put it that way. Uh, the thing, the, the first thing people say to me when they meet me and I say, oh, I'm an editor, uh, is you must be a good speller. <laughs> I'm like, not necessarily. <laughs> that is the, it does not follow from that. That's a copy editor. A copy editor um, can be in-house, but a lot of times they're freelance people who actually go through the manuscript and make sure, not just that the grammar is correct and the spelling is correct, but they also make sure that if you say Utah became a state in 1884, they look and say, no, no, it became a state in 1876 or something. P.S. I have no idea when Utah became a state, so don't, <laughs> don't send any letters in saying, you know, you, you, Utah. Utahns? Utahns? What are people from Utah think, called? I think that's actually it, but I'm not sure how you pronounce okay. it properly. I, I don't know <laughs> but I Sorry, apologize. Utah. Yeah. So I just don't know. Um, but uh, no, it, what I do um, is I acquire the book. So uh, agent sends me a manuscript. Uh, I read it. If I like it, I go to my boss and say, hey, I need some money to buy this manuscript. And then there's a whole big process about figuring out how much it's worth. Um, then I work with the author on the book, uh, editing it. Like I um, uh, will, you know, have an early conversation with them about her, about, um, you know, I think this part needs punching up. It gets a little slow in the middle, whatever. Um, uh, then I will, uh, he'll send me the first full draft that I'll write back and, uh, that's the first editorial letter where I'll say specific things. You know, I don't, don't understand this character's motivation. I don't understand. You know, I, I think this part is great, but I think this part needs some work or whatever. Um, he might he'll send me a second draft. You know, a lot of times that's all the editorial work. But um, sometimes we'll go back for a third draft. It depends. Um, then I put it in production. That's when the copy editor comes in, the copy editor. Uh, does his work. But the thing is, what I am is I am an advocate for this book. I am the only person in the house who is with this book from beginning to end. I am with this book from the first day it comes in and I read it and then I present it to uh, the art people to try to get the right cover on it. I present it to the sales department. I pitch it to the sales department so that they get excited about it talk to the marketing people about it. I talk to the publicity people about it. I do all this stuff. I do everything with it 
I mean, everybody else does too. Don't get me wrong. There's a ton of work that other people put into it, but I'm with it all the way from then till it's published, till after it's published. And then sometimes, you know, years later, you know, the author might want his rights back. Maybe it's no longer selling and the author wants its rights back. And I'm the person they come to and say, hey, this book that you published 10 years ago is no longer selling. The author wants his rights back. You know, is there any reason to talk to him and maybe think that we could do something with it? So I'm with this book from beginning to end, and it's my job. My main job really is to advocate for it, to make it the best book it can be, and then advocate for it. Um, and I love it. I love every minute of it. I love dealing with my coworkers. I love my authors. They're wonderful, interesting people. They're all very, very smart. Uh, they're all very nice. And uh, there's nothing else I could do in the world that would bring me as much happiness as this. Well, I mean, other than my family, but I'm just saying right, there's no work. Right. There's no work I could do in the world that would bring me as much happiness as this. Thank God. I hope Claudia doesn't listen to this. <laughs> my wife. <laughs> I love stories of great fits, though. Yeah. Because they sometimes seem so elusive, and it's great to see what it's like when, when they're not. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm not surprised that the first thing that people say to you is, you know, you you must really know your grammar and punctuation rules because I was surprised when I did my MFA and someone someone in my advising group had done an internship and it might have been with Penguin, I don't remember now, mm-hmm. and came back and said, yeah, no, they don't edit anything at all in the sense that you and I think of editing no. your draft. It just doesn't happen. And, and I know... I've seen stories in recent years of, you know, the New York Times firing most of its copy editors and and that kind of thing. How how is that in publishing these days? I know you said sometimes it's freelance, but no, everything gets copy. Uh, well, it gets so first of all, so first of all, back up. Let me back up. Um, so what I work on is commercial fiction, right? I don't work on nonfiction, not anymore. I have in the past, but right now. I work on commercial fiction. I don't work on literature. I don't work on nonfiction. Um, uh, so my main focus is character, plot, action, you know, stuff like that. I'm not, I mean, yeah, I will absolutely correct the spelling when I go through. Mm-hmm. And I will also line edit it. Like I will line edit and say, like, I feel like, you know, uh, you know, this phrase is clumsy and I'll, you know, move it some words around and stuff like that um but when when you really get down to it am i well i like who or whom i'm kind of big on who or whom i will say that Uh, (laughs) everybody has their bugaboo that that is my thing yeah for sure um but you know that or which eh, i have a vague idea why some things are which and sometimes things are that but i don't even bother that's what the copy editor does Mm -hmm. you know copy editor does that um I actually am kind of a good speller. I have to say I am kind of a good, you know what I am? I would put it this way. I'm one of those people. I might not be able to spell it right, but I know when it's spelled wrong. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I look at it, I go, there's something wrong with, I know enough to look at it and say, there's something wrong with this. I don't know if there's supposed to be four S's in assassin. Actually there are, Um, but I'll look it up. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm good with that. Uh, So I read it. Well, first of all, the author reads it, obviously sends it to me. I read it. I go through it, check all that stuff, goes back to the author, author reads it again, blah, blah, blah. Then it goes to copy editor, copy editor goes through and does all his copy, ed- her copy editing, um, which is all the things we talked about, the grammar, the punctuation, the, you know, and copy editors, this is a, a bone of contention between copy editors and authors sometimes. And I say this to authors all the time, copy editors are paid to be didactic. So you can't get upset if they're like just constantly calling you out for, you know, who or whom you -hmm. can't get upset about that because that's what they're paid to do. You don't have to, the thing is you don't have to accept it. If you feel like my story sounds better this way, even if it's it's wrong, my story sounds better this way, then we'll let you do that. Unless there's some completely crazy thing, but you Mm -hmm. know, usually we'll let you do that. Then it goes, then it gets set into pages, page what they call page proofs, you know, the pages that look like, uh, an actual book. And then it goes to a proofreader. The proofreader reads it and he will find mistakes. Uh, and then sometimes uh, the magic editors who are in-house, uh, if it's a big important book or something happened, or there's a reason to think there's a problem, they'll read it. They'll do what they call cold read uh, after the proofreader has read it and they'll go through. And 
Yet, despite all that, I guarantee you then some reader will write in and say like, hey, I'm perched page 32. He's talking to Sue and he calls her Jane. You're like, oh, you are absolutely right. I don't know how we all missed it, but it happens. I remember seeing a a tweet or a blog post from Neil Gaiman many years ago saying that the you know, the guaranteed way to find the typo in your finished book is to pick up the brand new copy, open it to a random page because there it will be. <laughs> that's absolutely true. A hundred percent. It is it is literally astonishing, like how many times we will find these mistakes and just, and everyone's aghast. I, I can't explain it. I just can't. I don't know how we miss them, but we do. I think at one point he was, you know, telling people, yeah, if you find them, send them in. We'll get them in the next edition. Oh, we do. No, we do. We say that all the time. We say like, we'll, we'll, you know, there'll be reprints. We'll, we'll fix it. You know, Uh, it's just nuts that it happens. Well, as someone who has worked as a copy editor and proofreader and English teacher, I'm, I'm glad to hear that copy editing is not dead in book publishing. It seems to be dying in newspaper publishing. So no, it's not dead. It's very healthy, very healthy. I mean, we have in-house copy editors and then we have freelancers, but uh, a lot of those freelancers are people who want to be freelancers. Mm -hmm. I would hate to be a freelancer, but some people like that, you know, sort of freedom. Yeah. So when, when you say that you have to tell people, you know, copy editors are paid to be pedantic don't don't worry um are are there people that that really get worked up about that i mean there must be or you wouldn't be saying that all the time i I don't no no well i don't say it all the time but i do say it um i I think any no i I mean most of my authors know i've had authors in the past sure who got worked up over it i've also had copy this happens very 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 rarely um but in the past, there have been copy editors who, I don't know if they had a bad day or if they just got tired of correcting who for whom, you know, <laughs> but, you know, they'll start getting snippy in their comments, you know, and not just say like, hey, this should be whom, but like, can't you tell the difference or something like that, you know, whatever. And so I guess it happens to the best of us. And I think with the authors, it's like just the, Sometimes you get tired, I guess, after the repetition of like, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's not usually that big a problem. Most authors are very cool about it. They understand it. Um, and uh, it's, not a, it's not a big deal. But, it you know, it helps to just remind them that that's what they're paid for. Your pedantic was the word I was looking for. That's the tactic, but thank <laughs> that was you. enough. I knew what yeah. you meant. I think probably everybody <laughs> else did, too. I'm off duty, so I'm not going to ding you for it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank goodness. It's all good. So it it must be interesting for you to see how authors adapt to the process of working with an editor. Do you get many who have never worked with an editor before? Oh, sure. How how does it usually? No, I take that back. I take that back. Um, Yes, it used to be the case, but now... You know, maybe it's because it's easier with the internet and everything, but so many people have at least some version of a beta reader or, mm. you know, a lot of times the agent will, you know, do some editing with them. Uh, I'm the first one who does, I don't want to say serious editing. That makes me sound like a jerk, but, you know. <laughs> um, substantial editing? Substantial editing with them. Um, I've never had anybody who, I, I mean, you know, you Nobody has to take everything. The first, so the first thing I say is, remember, everything I'm giving you is a suggestion. It's ultimately the the very first rule I learned actually as an editor was it's their book. It's not my book. It's their book. And you know, I, there might come a time when you know whatever they're proposing or something is unpublishable by us for whatever reason. So, you know, you might ultimately say, like, look, either you make this change or we're just not publishing this book. That has never happened in my 37 years doing this, that I've never gotten to that case. So I've always deferred ultimately to them. Uh, So what I'm saying is, then the second thing I say to them is, what makes me a better editor of your book than you is that I'm not you. You know, things that you think are very clear and make perfect sense. I'm just, I'm not smarter than you. I'm just the same. 
I'm just as smart as your average reader, right? So I'm just your average reader coming along reading this and saying, I don't know what this means. Like, are they inside the room or are they outside the room? But if they're outside the room, why is this thing, you know? So I'm just like, I I just don't understand what's happening. So um, 99% of the time, it's not an issue. And ultimately, the 1% of the time where, you know, they're like, no, no, I, I like the way it sounds. I'm like, okay, it's your book. I don't, I don't think this works. And, you know, it makes it, I don't think, it doesn't make it a better book to leave it the way it is. But, you know, it's your book. So it's not worth, can- we're not going to cancel the book because of this. So go to town and see what happens. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't keep track of whether I'm right or wrong. I don't, like, in those, in- <laughs> no, seriously, in those instances, I don't, like, go to Amazon, you know, a year later and look back and see if people wrote reviews that said, I don't understand what was going on in this scene, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm right, you know, but, um, but usually it's like meeting in the middle. It's, it's, it's not about dictating. It's not about saying like, look, you have to make these changes. It's just about saying, I, I this would make it clearer to me. Maybe that would be work better. Um, and, uh, but that's what I like. I mean, I always say it to the authors, I said, what I love about this is it's like I've got my own private book club with the author. (laughs) It's just me and the author. Yeah, no, that's a really cool way to look at it. Yep. Yeah. You you get to you get to see how the sausage is made. But at the same time, that's actually a pretty cool place to be a lot of the time. It is a great place to be. I'm I'm fascinated by how it's made. You know, it's in what's really fascinating about authors is they almost every one of them has a different technique. You know, they, they, some of them write front to back. That's it. You know, just straight through others of them. Oh, I'm going to write the ending and then I'm going to write this middle scene. I'm going to write this part, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I don't know how, I mean, personally, I could never write that way. That would make me insane. Other people, I know an author who writes honest to God, like an 80 page outline for, you know, a, 300 page book. And one time I said to him, like, you know, basically this is the whole book, but without dialogue, you know, you just have to add the dialogue and you got the book. Uh, other people, I had an author. Well, I mean, God bless her. She's passed away. Um, but Sue Henry, who was a mystery author of mine, uh, told me, you know, I just know the setup and I have no idea who the murderer is. I just start writing and I see where it takes me. And, you know, I was like, really? You're like, write a murder mystery and you don't know who the murderer is. She goes, no, I just go and I see what happens. And then when I get to the end, I'm like, okay. And then I might have to go back and add some clues, but you know, that would also make me crazy. I don't know how you do that. That is so interesting to me because I am definitely a seat of my pants writer. If I had, if I had that 80 page outline, I, there'd be no reason for me to write the book. (laughs) Cause I'd already know everything that happened. So, right. you know, but I've always figured that if you were going to write a mystery, you'd have to plot it out first so that all the pieces fit together. But now that you're saying that, you know, my, my thesis novel is not a mystery. It's a young adult fantasy novel. And, you know, I kept working on it even after I graduated, ended up self-publishing it. But you know, I sat down with it after I'd let it sit for a couple of months so it wasn't super fresh in my head and mm-hmm. all of that and reading through it. And I'd say, oh, wait, you know, this thing over here doesn't. There, how did we get from this to this? I'm not yeah. sure I know the answer or, you know, this doesn't match this. So which one am I keeping? And if I keep this one, what do I have to go back and change? And I actually really enjoyed that process because it did feel like putting a puzzle together. You know, mm-hmm. now I have to figure out what this is and how to make it work. And maybe that's what mystery writing was like for her. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know. Probably. It probably was. She was a very smart, very inventive woman. So I think she probably liked the challenge of like doing it that way. Cause I don't, honestly, I don't think most mystery authors do that. Most of my mystery authors, you know, know have outlined the story and they know, you know, from the very beginning, this person committed the murder. And, I'm going to go from there because that would yeah. drive me crazy not doing that, but you know, different strokes, but it is really interesting. The creative process, they, they almost all do it very different ways. And, uh, uh, I think the, this is, uh, I hope this won't offend your readers, but our <laughs> listeners, but 
Uh, one author call, says uh, he does what he calls his vomit draft. Because <laughs> like, I just vomit it all out, type it all up, and then I go back and start over again. It's like, well, okay, I get that all out of my system. And he just like starts pulling things out. Um, and I was like, well, I mean, I think I wouldn't put it that grossly, but like, I think that would be, if I wrote a book, I think that would be the way I would end up doing it. So, well, and you know, there's always Anne Lamott and her famous shitty first drafts essay, (laughs) which I found one of the most liberating things I'd ever seen in my life when I first read it. I was like, yes, yes, this makes perfect sense. If you expect it to be wonderful, you will fail. Just know it's going to be awful and write it anyway and then see what you have afterwards. And I just thought that is amazing. Because isn't that the whole, to me, that's the whole point of creativity is to um, just like put it all out there, you know. I, I don't know how you can be, be, I mean, ultimately you have to bring things back so that they work, you know, but you, you, you know, I don't know how you could uh, be creative within constraints. I think you have to be creative outside of constraints and then you get the idea and you work it and then you start chiseling it back down till it's, you know, a, a usable form. Right. I mean, I think, but yeah, the, there are the famous instances of like the guy who wrote, the book without the letter E. Oh, in which case, oh I don't God, think that works. Right. You know, I, I think <laughs> oh one of these God. days I'm going to look it up and, and go find it and read it because I'm just so amazed that anyone was able to do it. But you know, I think it depends on what kind of what kind of constraints we're talking about. But but yeah, I think that you know, if if you go totally without any constraints you'll end up with something that, as my brother, the architect, once put it to me, doesn't know what it wants to be. Right. And then it's just a mess. And, you know, then you have to figure out what it wants to be and hope that there's enough in there that you can run from to turn it into whatever it should be. But, yeah, I mean, I like I said, I write totally by the seat of my pants. Characters just show up in random places like, oh, hello, hi, who are you? (laughs) Welcome to the party and let's see what you have to add, you know, that kind of thing. And, and yeah, so I've, I've had people who have to plot things tell me that that's not possible and you can't really, and I'm sitting there going, really, I have this book over here. I can show you. I wrote it this way. And I know I'm not the only one who writes this way. And so obviously it can be done, but I think that there's also an argument to be made that if you if you don't outline in the first place, when you go back to that process of figuring out how it all needs to fit together, you're effectively outlining in reverse. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, ultimately you do have to do that. Right. You just do it in reverse. And that's what Sue would have said. She would have said, you know, it's not a matter. It's just the way she writes, but she has to go back afterwards and be like, okay, now I've got to add these clues Mm -hmm. in because otherwise, you know, otherwise it's just out of left field. Like just some random guy walks in. You know, and it, I'm the murderer. Who are you? I just showed up. And didn't tell anybody for that. Anyway. You've all been anyway. so excited trying to figure out who it was. And it was me, Joe Random, who you've never seen before. <laughs> Did you ever read? I So my favorite, not my favorite, but some of my favorite books are the very, very first Ellery Queen books. I think there's like five or six of them where uh, like about 20 pages from the end, they literally stop. And and there's a, a like a, a just a page where there's just like a line a line that says okay you have all the information you need now who's the murderer the Roman hat mystery the Greek something mystery I don't remember but um, and then you have to figure you, you know like okay well, who is it and the answer is always the one person that could not possibly have done it they're not really like who done it they're like how done it like when you fin- when you get to the end it's like it's some crazy crazy way that the murder was committed um and it's always the person who could you were convinced could not have done it and i just found that fascinating it was like a an exercise in torturing your your <laughs> readers but i did enjoy it to be honest with you yeah i think i think you're supposed to torture your characters not torture your yes, readers, not your readers. Yeah. yeah readers don't necessarily tend to react well to being tortured oh, they don't <laughs> So has there, I mean, there must have been um, somebody who either 
as as an author or their work has you know undergone a dramatic transformation as you've worked with it over time? Uh, yeah, I would say Mark Greeny, but like I, I don't take any credit for actually like trans. I mean, I would never say I've transformed somebody's work. That's mm-hmm. not the issue. But you know, uh, Mark Rainey, who writes the Rain Man series, was just a, a, a tremendous movie. Uh, the Rain Man was a tremendous movie on Netflix, and I've worked with him from his very first book, which was The Gray Man, about eleven years ago. Um, and I, 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 so what happened was, Mark, uh, the first couple books are great, really fantastic. They're very much straightforward chase scenes. Uh, and then uh, I was working with Tom Clancy. And Tom Clancy wanted uh, uh, to get a new co-author. And so I put Mark together with Tom. They hit it off like gangbusters, really liked each other, did three books together. And then after Tom died, Mark did three or four more. I can't remember exactly. Um, But he will say like that. And that really, you could see um, after his first three or four Gray Man books, they really started to change and become much bigger stories, not just physically bigger, but bigger stories, not just like about the gray man chasing someone or being chased by someone, but like machinations and plots and, you know, all this stuff. And he said he really got that from writing the Clancy books that like he, he had to put all that stuff because that's what Clancy's all about. Um, and he really sort of brought that to his own work. So uh, it really helped him mature and uh, he would say become a better writer. I take no credit for that. I just take credit for putting him with Clancy and the rest, <laughs> they did themselves. So that's great. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, the co author thing, which brings to mind someone like James Patterson, who is now yeah. writing outlines and handing them to other people to write. Do you have an opinion yep. about that? Good, bad, indifferent? I think it's great. I mean, you know, you get books that you like. Um, you know, he, he uh, is my understanding. Uh, is that he is very involved. You know, he comes up with the idea or like, you know, approves the idea or works with the author on the idea. Um, People really like him. I mean, my thing is if you read a book and you like it, it's a win all around. It doesn't matter how it got there, you know, what the circumstances were. Um, If, you know, you read a book and you were happy at the end, you know, or you were, maybe not, you don't just have to be happy. You could also be like, thoughtful or you could be moved or you could be you know but i mean if you were pleased with the experience uh then it's a win all the way around what always cracks me up is people who it doesn't happen that often it used to happen uh well not a lot but um i guess because the uh now it goes to customer service but it used to come to editorial <laughs> people would be like i read this book and i hated it and i will never read another birthday book again just any random book and you'd be like well okay but you know doesn't everybody have experiences that they didn't like? Didn't you eat like a hamburger that you didn't like? And you're like, I'm never eating another hamburger again. That's it. This hamburger was terrible. I mean, that happens, right? Not every book's going right. to be in everybody's taste, but um, I don't know if those people ever fall through. There's no, there's no uh, way to, to determine whether they did or didn't. But. That's an interesting choice to blame the publisher. Oh, people are always, yeah. you know, well, you know, you figure that anybody who would take the time to write is probably a little bit off kilter, right? I mean, and I, you know, listen, I, I've read books that I didn't like. You read books you didn't like. Mm-hmm. Lots of people did. And, you know, you don't sit down and think like, I am going to write to someone and tell them how terrible this book was. You're just like, yeah, you know, whatever. It wasn't that great. It, it reminds me, though, of the people who leave a review on Amazon and say, it it took three weeks to get here and the cover oh. was creased. <laughs> I feel for my authors. I feel for my authors. That is so terrible. You you live and die by those ratings, and then somebody gives you a one, you know, one star because the book came late or something. Oh they, I mean, I don't think those people are being mean. I don't I just don't think they understand. You know, they think they're reviewing Amazon. And they don't understand what they're doing to that author. It's just, it's terrible. It's really terrible. And they don't understand that it's not useful to anybody else. Right. You know, it's, it's not telling me whether or not I might enjoy this book. It's not telling me anything that I would want to know about the book in order to decide if I want to buy it. It's just like, what? I don't, I don't, (laughs) sorry, but call Amazon and have them send you another one, you know? I mean, and, and they don't, 
it's interesting that people don't always grasp that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's too bad. It's really awful. No, it is. Because as a, an author that I interviewed a year or two ago said, what am I supposed to do about that? <laughs> nothing. There's nothing yeah. you can do about it. I mean, one of the things we always say to authors is, although actually I've tempered this, I used to say, don't read your Amazon review or anyone. Just don't read them. Don't pay attention, blah, blah, blah. Um, but Don Bent, one of my authors, Don Bentley, said to me, no, what you should say is don't read the outlier reviews. But if like all the reviews are telling you, I don't know what, like this character is too mean or something. If all if there's a bunch of reviews that are saying that, you should take that to heart. If there's just one person who says it, then just ignore it. And I was like, oh, that's a good, that's a good. He made a good point. I I, I will now adjust to like be tempered when you read your Amazon reviews. So that's, that's an interesting approach. I think there's a lot of merit in there. It kind of reminds me what I was thinking when we were talking about, you know, this line is clunky, but if you're really attached to it, because I was always taught, like if somebody doesn't understand it, then you weren't being clear and you need to go back and, and change it. And I think that, you know, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, there's good advice in there that you need to listen to if enough people are saying the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So have you ever thought about writing a book of your own? No, 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 no. Everybody asked me that, <laughs> including my wife who asked me that she's particularly asked me that in the last two years since I started writing this journal. Um, and I just say no, because, well, first of all, because seeing how the sausage is made, you know, it is ton. Well, you know, it is a ton of work writing a book. Mm-hmm. It's a ton of work. It's astonishing to me that anybody thinks like, "Oh, you know what? Maybe I'll just write a book." Yeah. Well, <laughs> good luck with that. You know, even like a, a smallish book is seventy thousand words. You know, uh, and 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 that's a smallish book. You know, I mean, they're smaller, but it's it's a ton of work. It's 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 very hard. You know, and I don't think I have anything to say that anybody would want to hear. I mean, okay, before, you know, before anyone says, now I say this to people and they go like, I love your journal, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, except it's one page long. So that I don't, I haven't actually counted. It's probably like 200 words or something, you know, a day. And it's on all pre, like today, well, I actually didn't write one today because I was editing a manuscript, but, you know, uh, yesterday was about hiring assistants. Today, I would have written about the royal family. Tomorrow, I would write about, I don't know, getting water in my sneaker or something. <laughs> uh, you know, that's not, that does not make a book. You know, you right. can't write a book that's like every, thir- every third page is about something else. So, uh, yeah, I don't really, I don't think I would ever write a book. Now, having said that, who knows, but I don't, I don't think so. I think it's too much work. If I, was smart enough to write a book i'd like bet on the you know ponies or something probably <laughs> put my brain to that purpose <laughs> I had a better luck well how did you come to start writing the journal so i actually wrote a journal before this called journal of the plague and it started in march of i can't remember the exact day i think it was like march 11th it was the day that we were sent home from work mm-hmm. so we went home from work and uh, i'm i'm uh, one of the editorial, there's two editorial directors and we report to the editor-in-chief, right? And we each have like about 10 people who report to us. And, and um, well, maybe not 10, I probably have like eight people who report to me. Um, and we were, you know, if you remember back to March of 2020, like it was all this like, you know, COVID and what's happening and we're going to go home and we're going to work from home and, you know, how long are we going to work from home? And we were told like, okay, be prepared to be home for like two or three weeks. And uh, my boss, my editor-in-chief, took me aside and said, you know, now uh, her boss was saying um, could be as long as six months. And I remember distinctly saying to her, like, what are you, crazy? Six months? <laughs> are you out of your mind? We're not going to be home. Six- How can we be home six months? And the next day I got up and... Um, it's everything about this is so insane. I just happened to have a, a steno pad. I have no idea why I had a steno pad in the house. I never took steno. I was never a reporter. I have no idea why I have a steno pad. I had a steno pad. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if I wrote, like, I'll write Journal of the Plague day one. 
and I did. And I, I can't remember what it was about. It was probably about, I think one of the early ones was about, um, it, I don't think this was the first one. One of the early ones was about like how at sea I felt about being at home by myself. My kids were uh, uh, out of the house and uh, my wife worked in a hospital. So she was still going to work. Um, and I was, you know, doing all these things I don't usually do. And I, I remember one of the first ones was about um, how can we have like, I don't know, uh, like 20 knives, 30 forks, you know, 15, you know, teaspoons and two tablespoons. Like where the hell did all the tablespoons go? Like who's hoarding tablespoons? Why would anyone be hiding a tablespoon around the house? Like, I can't even imagine where they could have gone. Um, so I wrote this whole thing about like these tablespoons and uh, it was not enlightening. It was just odd. And uh, so that just started. So I was like day one, but I literally thought I'd be writing this for two weeks. And it literally went on for 500 days. I wrote it for 500 days. And uh, 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 I stopped right when we went back to work. Uh, we went back on September 16th of 2021. Right. Wait, mm-hmm. this is only 2021. And um, it just it literally worked out like Sunday was like day 500. And then I was like, OK, that's it. I'm done. And then I thought, well, I'm going to write something else because I kind of enjoyed writing it. Although that thing I wrote every single day, every day because they were numbered. So I wrote them every single day. I literally had back surgery and uh, leading up to the back surgery, I could only lay on my left side. So I wrote like on my left side in this book. It was insane. And uh, then I said like, okay, I'm going to continue this, but I'm going to write this Chronicles of the Quotidian. And, uh, but I I did say to people, uh, the difference is going to be, it'll be most days, but there will be days when I'm just like, eh, I don't really have a good idea or a busy with something else and I'll just get you tomorrow. So I I write it probably like six days a week or so. but uh, I do kind of, I honestly, I've come to kind of enjoy it. Um, a lot of people, you know, I can't believe how many people follow it. It's just insane to me. And the really freaky thing is that I forget that I write it. So I'll run into people, not just people like I know, but like I, I went to the Bouchercons, this big mystery convention um, two weeks ago out in Minneapolis. And I went to that um, and people are coming up to me and like, I don't know, asking me about like, you know, uh, my cold or something. And I was like, how do you know I had a cold last week? And I'm like, oh, you wrote about it. I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that. <laughs> really freaky, you know? But yeah, I kind of enjoy it, to be honest with you. I, I pretend to not like it, but I, I do kind of, uh, kind of like it. Well, you wouldn't keep writing it if you really didn't like it, right? Yeah. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it's fun. I, I enjoyed the one about your mother making you watch Prince Charles become the Prince of Wales. (laughs) Even my aunt, who's my mother's sister, was like, you watch that? I was like, (laughs) he made me get up in the morning. I had to sit there. I was seven years old. I'm watching him be invested as the Prince of Wales. It was insane. Mom Mom loved royal stuff. Loved it. So. Yeah, we certainly got a lot of that in the last couple of weeks. I know she would have loved this. Yeah. Yep. I remember my mom getting up to watch him get married in 81. So, you know, I that's as close as I get. But, but yeah. She made, my, she made my sisters get up for that one. I didn't have to get up for that one. <laughs> that's I interesting. Was, well, in 81, I would have been, I was 19 in 81. So oh, I was old enough okay. to be like, okay. all right, I'm just rolling over and going back to sleep. You can, you know, get the girls up to watch this. So they got up and watched it. Oh my. Well, I was wondering if you might close us out with some advice for people who want to be authors. Oh, okay. So good. Uh, yes. The first thing is write all the time. Uh, I, I say that on a intellectual level because any writing teacher will say to you, you got, you know, you want to be an author, you got to write. Um, but I also said that now because while I'm talking about this journal, which is just penny ante little things. But still, any day that I skip, like I skipped today because I absolutely had to get this editorial letter out. I skipped today. It'll be harder to write tomorrow. If I skip tomorrow, it'll be 
considerably harder to write on Friday. And um, the only time I had like an extended period was right after Uvalde. Like I went like four or five days without writing because I just couldn't think. I mean, I, 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 I don't usually talk about things like that, you know, but I felt like I couldn't not say something about it, but I couldn't think of what to say that wasn't like horrible or whatever. So I just went like, and then the longer I went, the more I was like, I got to do something. And uh, it was very hard, but um, you got to write all the time. And then uh, the positive side uh, is that you need to read all the time. Uh, You should be reading whatever you like. Uh, Oh, and then the last thing, is write what you want. Don't write to the market. You know, when I go to a writer's thing, uh, a lot there's always someone who'll be what's selling. What's selling? And I'll say, look, that is totally the wrong question to ask. It's completely the wrong question because first of all, all I know is what's selling now. If I tell you right now this is what's selling, and you go home and write it, it's going to take you a year to write it, and you come back then, and I'll say, oh, that's no longer selling now. You know, the market has moved on from that. But beyond that, you can't fake interest or love of things. You know, you can't like pretend if I said to you, like, oh man, horror is really hot, you should really write some horror. If that's not your bag, then that's not your bag. You shouldn't try to be like, I'm gonna try to do that. Or, you know, romance is always huge. Romance is always huge. I could never in a million years pretend to write a romance. It would be terrible. And you shouldn't try to do that. You should, I mean, I'm not saying like just uh, stick in your lane. I mean, do, you know, you know, expand your horizons, but, you know, be true to yourself. This is what I want to write. And when you write it, when you've written it, you will either be able to sell it to someone who will publish it. You will be able to self-publish it, or you'll just have an interesting story that, you know, your grandchildren will read. You know, we found after my father-in-law died, I didn't even know this. He had taken a creative writing course and he wrote these stories, but they were basically like uh, autobiographical things that mm-hmm. had happened to him. And they were great. They were great. I mean, not, no, they could never have been published because who would ever have wanted to read them? They were just things that, you know, had happened to him. Um, but from our perspective, they were really interesting. It was delightful to have these stories about how grandpa did this and then he did that. And then, you know, so. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, uh, reading, writing and writing what you want are the, the tricks to being successful. That that will drive you to success more than anything else. That makes perfect sense to me, especially the part about writing what you want to write and not writing yeah. something for the purpose of selling it. No, I mean, almost no one can do this. Sure. Certainly, you know, I, I say that with hesitation because I'm sure someone will come back and say, Here's this famous author who, like, you know, blah, blah. Well, like the guys, remember early on I said Elmore Leonard and those guys were pulp writers and they wrote westerns or they wrote mysteries or whatever was selling. Okay, well, congratulations, but you're not Elmore Leonard, you know? <laughs> I, mean, you know? I mean, yeah, good for him, but there's a reason he's Elmore Leonard and I'm Tom Colgan because he's a genius and I'm not. So I, I wouldn't try to, like, do that. Well, he would have had to have been interested in it on some level. Anyway. Probably, yeah. I would think yeah. he probably. I don't think that he, well, he didn't ever wrote, I don't think he ever wrote a romance, right? Right. Yeah. So there you go. That proves it. No, um, (laughs) who would love to read an Elmore Leonard romance though? That would be awesome. That would be interesting. Rom-com would be fantastic. (laughs) It would probably have so many other oddball elements of the other kinds of things that he wrote. It would be really interesting. That would be great. Yeah. Well, that seems like a perfect place to stop. But thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating conversation. Well, thanks a lot, Nancy. I really had a great time. That's our show. I'm so grateful to Tom Colgan for sharing his career and insights with us. And as always, to you for listening. If you enjoy Follow Your Curiosity, please leave a review. There's a link right in your podcast app. And tell us what you'd write about if you decided to write a book or what you've already written about. And don't forget to share this episode with a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. 
And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com. And there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.